I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is not the text that I'll be preaching from, but this is certainly germane to, and we'll come back to consider these verses a little bit later. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through the beginning of verse 8. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Friendship is one of life's greatest blessings. And more than that, friendship is one of our greatest needs. Not only would life be dreary, it would be almost impossible without friends. We have been created as social beings in the image of the triune God, the ever-blessed three-in-one. And beginning with the marital relationship, extending into the family, and outward from our homes and into society, God has made us to befriend others. Solomon assumes this familial foundation of close relationships in a couple of Proverbs, and I invite you to open your Bibles to Proverbs chapters 17 and 18. We're going to be looking at a couple of texts of Scripture and explaining their practical meaning this morning. First of all, Proverbs 17 and verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And then chapter 18 and verse 24. We'll jump right in on the last part of the verse. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Commenting on these two texts, one writer has observed, one of the greatest needs of a man is that of friendship. Without friendship, he would die at the first dawn of infancy. He needs friendship to nurture his body and educate his mind. 
Friendship is his shield in danger, his guide in perplexity, his strength in weakness, his succor in sorrow. He needs the hand of friendship to receive him into the world and to help him out of it. And through all the intervening stages, from the cradle to the grave, he requires its presence and its aid. What sun and air and dew are to the seed, friendship is to him. That which quickens, nourishes, develops, and perfects his being. These proverbs, these two that we just read, lead us to notice the degrees and duties of that true friendship which Aristotle describes as composed of one soul in two bodies. Now today I wish to turn our attention to the important subject of true friendship. We've engaged ourselves some months ago in a study of Proverbs. We're looking at major themes within the book of Proverbs. We looked at the overarching theme of the fear of the Lord. And then we looked at sexual purity. Last time we looked at the sluggard. And today we're looking at Solomon's portrait of true friendship. Now, of course, we're going to draw from our supporting material from elsewhere in God's Word. But the focus of our attention will be these two epitomizing texts of what true friendship is. And we're going to have two points by way of main heading, and then we're going to come to a few words of concluding application. We're going to look at the love of a true friend, and then the fidelity of a true friend. So let us consider then the love of a true friend. Observing that men commonly tout their own faithfulness, often against evidence to the contrary, Solomon states in Proverbs 20 and verse 6, Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? And Solomon's describing in these two verses what a trustworthy man is in relationship to his love of other people. Trustworthy, loyal friends are a rare asset and they are a treasured find. So common is hypocrisy in our human condition that Solomon instructs young people, remember that's who he's writing to, primarily in the book of Proverbs, he instructs young people, and indeed he instructs, instructs all the rest of us to seek friends, that as one commentator puts it, seek friends with the granite quality of being conscientious in unfailing kindness. But not only that, he says, but to such people themselves. We need to be that kind of people ourselves. So we must not come before the Lord this morning with our thumbs in our lapels, proudly pro proclaiming our own loyalty. I trust we know ourselves better than that. But to learn what loyal friendship looks like and seek by the grace of God to imitate and embody those characteristics in our relationships with other people. 
We want to be that friend that loves at all times. We should want to be that brother that's born for adversity. We want to be that friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I dare say, if you possess the grace of God, that's what you want to be. It's easy to declare that we demonstrate the love of a true friend. But such love proves to be costly and often inconvenient for us. Sometimes our, our friendship is as long as our convenience. No, friend love, we might say, is a long love. It's also a deep love. It's an abiding love. It's not superficial. It's not short-lived. It's heart-deep and long-lasting. Notice then, from Proverbs seventeen seventeen. That a friend loves. Well, what is love? What is a friend? What is the love of a friend? What are its characteristics? Well, as we seek to answer that question, we're going to look at a true friend's love described and then a friend's love demonstrated. First of all, let's describe a true friend's love. In all of the Bible, no fuller description of love is to be found than what the Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 13. It's fleshed out in many places, but it's summarized there in a number of characteristics in verses 1 through 8. And now his purpose there in 1 Corinthians and in setting forth the description of love in all of its facets is not to describe marital love, though these qualities are essential to harmony and happiness in marriage, or to describe the love that should characterize families, though the practice of these principles will make a home a haven of love. These qualities of love should characterize God's people as they relate to each other in the church. Paul has spoken about spiritual gifts, and many prided themselves on their showy spiritual gifts. But Paul says, if you want to make a proper impact within the church, you really want to bless the members of the church, you need to demonstrate a greater gift, and that's the gift of love. See, the love of Christ in Christians should make them the best kind of friends. And these qualities should spill over into our relationships with all people. In Paul's description, he sets before us, as it were, a 15-faceted diamond that sparkles with all of the radiance of the preciousness of love, showing us the power of love for good. Now we're only going to be able to briefly summarize these facets this morning. What are they? Well, first of all, love is patient. Strong word here. It means to be long-fused, to not be short-fused, ready to go off the cuff and be angry. It's patient. Secondly, it's kind, it's gracious. It displays gentle behavior. It's not rough and, and crude and tough. No, but it's kind, easily entreated. 
Love, furthermore, is not jealous or envious. It doesn't want what someone else has or even be willing to take it away so that we could have it. It's not jealous. It rejoices with those who rejoice. It's happy for the promotion of others, even if they get promoted before us. It's not jealous. It's not envious. Furthermore, it does not brag. It doesn't go around with its chest out strutting, pointing to itself. It's not cocky. It's not boastful. Furthermore, it's not arrogant. It's not puffed up with a sense of its own importance. Furthermore, it does not act unbecomingly. It's a, because it's gentle, it's well-mannered, it's not rude, it doesn't defy proper decorum. One who loves will be a gentleman or a lady. Furthermore, love does not seek its own. It's not after what it can get. It desires to provide what it can give. It seeks what is best for others. It treats others, Paul says in another place, as being more important than himself. Furthermore, love is not provoked. We saw that it's patient. Well, it's not provoked. It's not irritable. It doesn't possess a sharp spirit. It doesn't wear something on its sleeve, just daring somebody to knock it off. Furthermore, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't keep a record of hurts. You've hurt me so many times. I, I just can't forgive you. I can't get over it. Uh, I can forgive, but I just can't forget. Well, you have to question whether you're really forgiving if you've got this thing in the back of your mind all the time. It doesn't keep a record of hurts with a view of settling accounts. I'm going to get even with you for what you've done to me. Furthermore, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It doesn't, it doesn't delight in wickedness. It takes pleasure in what is true. Furthermore, and we'll see, love bears all things. It has shoulders. It covers. It forbears. It protects Love believes all things. That doesn't mean that love is gullible. No. No. We're to be, to be discerning in our love. But love has faith in others. It puts the best construction on doubtful matters. And love hopes all things. Love has a characteristic of being positive. It looks, looks on the bright side of things. It expects good and truth to triumph. Love's a positive grace. And we're going to see that love endures all things. This word in the original language means to bear up under something. Something that would weigh you down. It enables you to bear up. It, this love is persevering. It, it exhibits fortitude. 
finally, in, in a summary fashion, as it were, love never fails. It perseveres. It survives. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, so to speak. <clears throat> Solomon says in Proverbs seventeen seventeen, a friend loves. He loves at all times. So that very briefly is a true friend's love described. Notice, secondly, a true friend's love demonstrated. This is all theory. We need to clothe this in shoe leather. What, is, what do these characteristics look like? So we're better able to understand and appreciate these aspects of love when they're clothed in flesh and blood. Now, brethren, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say that our love is not perfect. Does it display all of these characteristics at all times in their fullest expression? Does it? Does our love? Well, obviously not, unless we're self-deceived. No, we're selfish. We're self-centered people. Contentions may weaken the most harmonious of relationships, even between Christians. In fact, friends don't always get along. Brothers sometimes fight. Indeed, the first murder was of one brother of another. Still, brothers are often, and we might say ordinarily close. Solomon assumed this. In fact, brotherhood is an emblem of inseparable unity, of common commitment, even of fierce mutual loyalty. Whatever else may separate brothers when their hearts are right, when push comes to shove, you can say all you want about me, but don't talk about my brother like that. They ordinarily share one heart, and they will come together in times of difficulty times of opposition, and they will support one another. And this is the picture that Solomon paints for us in these two verses. He's speaking of friend love. Friends may come from different wombs, but they share one heart. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Such friends bear the stamp of kindred love, of unswerving loyalty, of common blood. They are, as it were, birthed out of the same womb of love. They will stick by each other at often great cost, even when one or the other is assailed by ruthless enemies or facing grueling trials. Such a brother, Solomon says, is born for adversity. We may say of an accomplished swimmer that he is born for the water. True friends are born for adversity. You may put your back up against such a friend when facing opposition or slander or persecution. Such a man was Jonathan, the son of Saul, in his relationship with David. You might remember that the two met on the battlefield after David slew the Philistine giant. And from that point on, 
They became loyal, committed friends. We read in 1 Samuel 18 that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Three times uh, in 1 Samuel, uh, Jonathan is spoken of uh, as loving David as himself. Jonathan's loyalty to David is striking. As the son of King Saul, Jonathan was the heir apparent to the throne of Israel, and yet he befriended a man whom he knew God had destined to succeed his father as the king of Israel. Not himself, but David. David didn't view or Jonathan didn't um, view Jesse, the son of Jesse, as an enemy, as a rival, but he saw him as his bosom companion, willing to serve David faithfully until the day that God seated him on the throne, and then ever afterward, I want to serve you after you become king. We see here that love is not jealous, it does not seek its own. And love endures all things, even a father's wrath on behalf of a righteous friend. You know how Saul feared David. He was jealous of David. He tried to kill David on a number of occasions. And so Jonathan, he took chances to warn David at one point, risking his own life to defend his friend. And then at various times, Jonathan sought out his harried and hounded friend to encourage him. And as it says in one place in the scriptures, to strengthen his hand in God. When David's imminent danger became apparent, the two met for mutual consultation and commiseration, parting from one another with tears. In one of their last times together, they renewed their covenant with each other. Jonathan hoping to serve under his friend as Israel's king, but that day never came. Jonathan and David were, so to speak, Siamese twins that were joined at the heart. A bond of mutual commitment intertwined their souls. And this union was evident in their lives. And it was apparent at Jonathan's death. David lamented his friends passing, chanting, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. You see, David esteemed the love of his deceased friend more precious to him even than the love of his first two wives. Jonathan was a friend that loved at all times. Jonathan proved himself to be a brother born for adversity. Further, we read of two women, a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law, that loved each other, especially the daughter-in-law exhibiting this kind of kindred love. 
After facing together a string of life-altering tragedies that left both women financially destitute and bereft of their husbands and one of her sons, Ruth refused to return to her family in Moab, but instead wholeheartedly committed herself to her mother-in-law, to her people, and to her God, no matter what awaited them, to part to part with Naomi only by death, confirming her commitment to her mother-in-law with a solemn oath. We read of this in Ruth, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. There they are, destitute women, both widows. Naomi had lost both of her sons, one of them Ruth's husband, facing a very bleak future. There had been a famine that had come, and that's why that why um, Naomi and her husband moved to Moab because the famine was not fierce there. Now they're moving back home. What's going to face them when they cross the border and enter back into Israel? There was just a huge question mark on the horizon. They didn't know what waited for them. But Ruth said. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. See, she could have gone back and it got assimilated right back into her family. They were no doubt waiting for her, hoping that she'd come home, hearing about all these tragedies in her life, probably getting her room ready. Ruth didn't take the easy way. What did she say? For where you go... I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, she's a Moabite, she's speaking of the Jews, Naomi's people. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Ruth's subsequent life validated her oath to her beloved mother-in-law. You might say of Ruth's love that it never failed. Many other examples could be cited of unfailing friend love, of costly brother-like commitment. Onesiphorus often refreshed the imprisoned apostle, unashamed of his chains, putting himself in harm's way. We read of Epaphroditus, Paul's fellow worker and fellow soldier, who likewise ministered to his needs. We read of Titus, whose labors brought comfort to the weary apostle, and of Aquila and Priscilla, whom we read, risked their own necks for Paul's life. Their love was kind. It endured all things for the apostle's sake. But dear people, what are these Worthy examples of brotherly love, but very faint shadows of the perfect love of him who is the closest of brothers and the best of friends, who laid down his life to save sinners, whose love makes his enemies into his friend, whose love takes us from being sons of Satan to being sons of God. 
Jesus didn't merely risk his neck, but willingly laid down his life to deliver us from sin, from death, from Satan, and for the un, from the unquenchable fires of everlasting hell. John 15 and verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Well, having briefly pondered the description and demonstration of a true friend's love, let's now spend a few moments considering the fidelity of a true friend. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You see, the love of a true friend can always be counted on. Thick or thin. Happy times, sad times. It's not fickle. It's faithful. It's not erratic. It's stable. Fidelity marks the love of a true friend. His loyalty doesn't come and go. He's constant. He's ever loving. He's never leaving the grievous or costliness of a trial matters not. He's always there. He's not a fair-weather friend. The fidelity of a true friend cannot be purchased at any price or lost at any cost. Many pander after the rich. The Bible teaches that, and we see this around us, that wealth draws friends. But money plays no part in a true friend's fidelity. He's not attracted by your wealth, nor is he put off by your poverty. Proverbs 19, verses 4 and 6. Wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. Many will entreat the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. Chapter 14 and verse 20. The poor man is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. A man's destitute condition may drive away professed friends. When the going gets rough, those kind of friends get going. The wounded man in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan discovered this. His countrymen, even the most religious among them, refused to assist him. So-called friends seem to evaporate when a man comes to hard times. The prodigal in another of Jesus' parables learned this. When his money ran out, his friends ran off. But a true friend is constant. His faithfulness is not determined by circumstances. No loss, whether it's your loss or his loss, will drive him away. In fact, troubles only draw out and demonstrate his commitment. You never really know their true worth until you face a difficult trial. And that friend isn't gone. He's here. What can I do? He shows himself to be a foul weather friend. That's the best of friends. But talk is cheap and few are faithful friends. Remember Solomon's observation. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? 
The Good Samaritan, again, in Jesus' parable, proved himself such a friend. In fact, he proved himself to be a friend he'd, of a friend he did, of, a, of a man he didn't even know. You know the story. He's traveling along and he comes upon a man who's been robbed and beaten and left for dead. He knew nothing about the man except that he needed prompt medical attention. And while the wounded man's own Jewish kinsman turned a blind eye to him, this Samaritan, as a half-breed heretic by God's people regarded, immediately, and at no small cost to himself, addressed himself to this man's critical need, probably saving his life. He showed love to the needy man. He provided him when it was costly and inconvenient. The Samaritan is the friend that sticks closer than a brother, showing compassion to a Jew when the wounded man's own countrymen wouldn't lift a finger to help him. But instead passed on their own way. They've got too many things to do, you know. They can't get interrupted. You see, this Samaritan, this unnamed Samaritan, proved himself to be a brother born for adversity. In closing, we must not misunderstand Solomon's main point in these two Proverbs. He's not so much presenting criteria by which we are to evaluate the friendship of others as for us to examine ourselves and ask what kind of friend are we to others? Do you, do I show this kind of love to others? That we are not fair, but a foul-weather friend, unswervingly loyal, no matter the cost? Are we the kind of friend that will not turn a blind eye to another's need, or to cut and run when the going gets rough, when the cost of faithfulness and fidelity might come at a price too dear? Solomon is describing, ultimately, the best of friends. The kind of friend we have in Jesus. The Lord Jesus knew exactly what it would cost him to ransom us from our sin, to take away the sting of death, and to quench the fires of hell for us at a cost that no man, mere man, could ever or would ever pay. He stepped in the sinner's place. And he took the lightning stroke of the wrath of God upon him, unmixed with any mercy, full strength, the anger of God. He did that for his enemies so that he might make them his friends. By his sacrifice for sinners, Jesus proved that he is the sinner's best friend. And by his voluntary death for unlovely and unlovable people like us, he proved his undying love. John 13, verse 1. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should soon depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Time, extent, end, it, it means that there, there's no limit to Jesus' love for his people. We sung one of, one of the hymns this morning that certainly speaks of that love. John Newton's words, One there is above all others, well deserves the name of friend. His is love beyond a brother's, costly, free, and knows no end. They who once his kindness prove, find it everlasting love. Which of all our friends to save us could or would have shed his blood? But our Jesus died to have us reconciled in him to God. This was boundless love indeed. Jesus is a friend in need. Now what does this say to us by way of a couple of concluding applications? Three this morning. First of all, thank God for the blessing of true friends. How dreary life would be without friends, especially without faithful friends that to one degree or another bear this stamp. Bless God for them. Could you imagine life without them? God has given them as a gift to you and to me. Secondly, Christians seek to be to others the kind of friend that Jesus is to you. Seek to be to others the kind of friend that Jesus is to you. He's the friend of sinners. Well, he has to be. He never would have befriended us if he wasn't. He loves you in spite of your sins and your failures and your shortcomings. He still loves you. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is the brother that is born for adversity. He took your hell upon the cross and he sticks with you through thick and thin. Even when you sin against him, he doesn't say, okay, you know, that's too many times. I'm out of here. That's not in his vocabulary. He has kept you. He is growing you in his grace and likeness. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will bring you after all, safely to glory. He's the author and finisher of your faith. He's gone there to prepare a place for you at the right hand of the Father. He's right now, as it were, the carpenter's son building mansions for his people. Where he has gone, we will go. He'll receive us to himself if we are his people. Seek to be this kind of friend to others so that when you fail and you sin against them, 
you might point them to the one who will never fail them, Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. Thirdly, Jesus is the friend of sinners that each one of us desperately needs. We need friends to help us along this way in, in this world, but they can't, they can't bring us to heaven like Jesus can. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. If you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, I speak to you. Jesus is the friend of sinners that each one of us, you and I, desperately need. Oh, thank God for the friends that he gives us, faithful friends. And we're going to look at what a faithful friend demonstrates in his life toward you and me in another message. But Jesus is the friend that each of us desperately needs. Our friends can't save us, but he can, and he will. How desperately you need the friend of sinners. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to rescue wicked and wayward people like you and like me. He wasn't content to stay in, in heaven. He came to this world to save sinners. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to lay down his life as a ransom for sinners. He died to free you from your sins. He died to deliver you from the power of the devil and from the wrath to come. You and I can do nothing to save ourselves. We can't pull ourselves up to heaven by our own bootstraps. Sinners can't make themselves righteous. We need a righteousness from someone else. We can't work out that righteousness. But Jesus has. By his holy life, he fully obeyed the law that we have broken at every point. And he endured the wrath of God against lawbreakers like you and me. Only Jesus can save you. Trust him. He came to save helpless, ungodly enemies of God like you and me. What does Paul say in Romans 5? He says, For while we were still helpless, there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, you see. Those that think they're righteous, they don't think they need a Savior. He came to save those who know that they're sinners and need to be saved. Paul says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps the good man, for the good man someone would dare to die, he might save them in this life, but he can't save them for the next life. He can't save them for their, from their sins. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
He came to die for sinners like you and me. Much more than, Paul writes, having now been justified, declared right by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So I hope you don't go away this morning from this message just thinking about what it means to be a true friend. But to be one who needs a true friend, who needs Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. Oh, may he speak to each one of our hearts this morning. May he speak to us by effectual grace. If we're not his, may he call us to himself. And if we are his, may we shout holy hallelujahs to the goodness and grace of our God. Let's pray. What a wonderful hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. Lord, you proved that by leaving glory and coming to this world. to Take upon yourself a body that could die. A body in which you never sinned. But you were continually sinned against. Sinned against by the likes of us. Who thrust our fist in your face. But yet you went all the way to the cross and you underwent voluntarily for the joy set before you. You endured the cross, you despised the shame. And when we were shaking our fists in your face and and cursing you, you stayed on that cross and you paid for the sins of those, even many of those, who had placed you there. And indeed, we have, by our our sins, put you upon that cross. We thank you that you paid the, the price in full. You were able to cry, it is finished. And you rose again on the third day, declaring that your Father had accepted your sacrifice. And now you who interceded for us by your blood, intercede by by your prayers at the right hand of the Father. We bless you for the so great salvation that we have purchased by the friend of sinners. Oh Lord, do good to each one of us this morning. Cause these things to be fresh to our hearts and perhaps even fresh for the first time to some that have never heard or never believed. Why this for them be the day of salvation. For we pray this In our blessed Savior's name, Jesus Christ, amen.